I'm Stephen Hundley from IUPUI, and this is the award-winning podcast, Leading Improvements in Higher Education, a service of the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. Our sponsor for this season is the Center for Assessment and Research Studies at James Madison University. This episode features a Leadership Perspectives conversation with Joe Garcia, Chancellor of the Colorado Community College System, the largest higher education and workforce training provider in the state of Colorado. I know you will enjoy the insights shared by Chancellor Garcia during this episode of Leading Improvements in Higher Education. On today's episode of the podcast, we are so delighted to be joined by Chancellor Joe Garcia, the Chief Executive of the Colorado Community College System. Chancellor Garcia, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Well, I'm delighted that you're here as well. As we begin, we always like to learn a little bit about our guests, including their background. So we'd like to ask you to do so uh, to kick us off by telling us a little bit about your background, including your professional journey to your current role. Well, thank you, Dr. Hundley. First, nobody calls me Chancellor Garcia. Please call me Joe. Um, and I've uh, it's been quite a journey, I will tell you. I uh, didn't set out to be an educator. I was a student activist when I was in college. In fact, being an activist is what helped me get focused and get through college because I struggled initially. Uh, and I got very interested during my second year at the university in the success rates for students of color at the state university I was attending, which had only recently started admitting significant numbers of Hispanic students. And uh, many of them weren't doing well. Many did not feel well supported. Many did not feel welcome. And far too many left. And that's when I first got interested in equity in higher education. I went from, um, I graduated from the university And I went back to the job I had been doing before, which was I was a truck driver. I had been a truck driver for Mayflower Van Lines, and I drove tractor trailers in the summers and dump trucks and trash trucks in the winter. And I took classes at a local community college in the evening in uh, in law. I had gotten interested, as I said, in college and wanted to figure out what I could do to focus again on issues around educational equity before I ever called it educational equity. So I took a couple of courses uh, at the community college and then decided to apply to law school. And that was my next step. I didn't really know of any other law schools other than Harvard and University of Colorado. So I applied to those. Fortunately, got into both of them. And uh, the guys at the truck yard said, First, they didn't believe me. And then they said, you need to go to Harvard. And I did. And I pursued the same interest there, real focus on equity and civil rights, and especially underrepresentation of students of color at the law school. Long story short, I got out. I practiced law for 10 years, got interested in public education law and represented a local school district while also working with local community organizations that were again focused on inequitable outcomes for students of color in our local school district. That was of interest to me, 
particularly not just because of my own experience, but because I have biracial black Latino children who are going through that same school system. Um, after practicing law for 10 years, I had the opportunity to work for um, a governor here in Colorado, and I took the opportunity and became a member of his cabinet. And that was my first step into paid uh, work in the public sector. After six years there, I did two years also working in the last two years of the Clinton administration, working for housing and urban development. Um, and then I had the opportunity to apply for the presidency at Pikes Peak Community College in Colorado Springs. And I will tell you candidly, the only reason I had a chance was because they'd had a failed search and were a little bit desperate and were willing to take a look at a non-traditional candidate. And once I started there, that's all I've done since. I've really enjoyed my time in higher education. So I was the president of Pikes Peak Community College then of Colorado State University Pueblo. Then I was asked by a candidate for governor to run as his lieutenant governor, which I had originally declined. But as we talked about it, and we agreed that I could also serve as the head of the Department of Higher Education, it became more appealing to me. So for six years, I served as lieutenant governor and as the head of the Department of Higher Education for Colorado. And then a couple more steps along the way, um, president of the Western Interstate Commission on Higher Education, and then back to head the Colorado Community College System, which is what I've been doing for the last five years. Chancellor Joe Garcia. Joe, if you will, and, and likewise, please call me Stephen. Thank you for sharing about your journey that, if I understood correctly, started at a community college. So for listeners who may not be as familiar with your current context, that being the Colorado Community College System, Tell us more. What is the scope of the system? What are some interesting facts, you know, maybe tidbits of information or points of pride you wish to share? Well, I am proud of all that we do here. We have 13 colleges under one governing board. That governing board hires the chancellor, and then I hire and evaluate the presidents at those 13 colleges. They range from very large colleges that serve over 20,000 students a year to very small rural colleges that serve fewer than 1,000 students a year. We have about 35 locations around the state. We're the largest system of public higher education in the state. And what I'm most proud of is that we serve everybody. We don't pride ourselves on the number of students we turn away, but the number of students we accept and support. And those are disproportionately students who are first generation, low income. We serve about half of all students of color who attend college in Colorado. We serve refugees, uh, working spouses, working parents, um, immigrants, English language learners, rural and urban, and we really try to do it all well. And we were recently recognized that in a study done by Complete College America for doubling our completion rates over the last five years while closing equity gaps. Joe, thank you for sharing information about the Colorado Community College system where you, quoting you now, serve everybody through the students you accept and support. 
I'd like to pan back a little more broadly and would appreciate your perspectives on the important roles community colleges in general play in the United States, especially through the U.S. higher education landscape. What are the missions of community colleges? What types of programs do they offer? What kinds of students do they serve? And what kinds of impacts you've been describing, important impacts your institutions have been making? What kind of impacts do community colleges collectively make in the United States? Let me start with a broad historical context, because I think community colleges are key, uh, a key step, a key evolutionary step in the small d, democratization of higher education. When we think about how higher education started in this country, it was very exclusive. It was served very few individuals. They were private institutions that served uh, white men, wealthy white men. But as we evolved and we developed land-grant institutions, HBCUs, as we moved into the new era after um, veterans began returning from war with the GI Bill after World War II, as we moved into the 60s and had the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Higher Education Act of 1965, that's when community colleges really began to grow. We had a number of small junior colleges in the state going back to the 30s and 40s, but we didn't really have the big urban and suburban community colleges that we have now. And again, each time we've taken one of these evolutionary steps and each time, whether it was women or people of color or working class people or returning servicemen, each time we expanded who had access to higher education, we strengthened our economy, we strengthened our country, we grew our middle class in a way no nation ever has. Community colleges are just the most recent step in that evolution. Joe, thank you for talking about the important role community colleges play in the U.S. higher education landscape. And as you mentioned in your introduction, your professional journey involved time as a politician and leader in state government, specifically as Colorado's lieutenant governor and executive director of the Colorado Department of Higher Education. So how have these roles influenced your work as chancellor of the Colorado Community College System? What are some of the expectations policymakers, especially those in state government, what expectations do they have of higher education? You know, it is such an important question, Stephen, because although my first uh, roles in state government were not in higher education, they all helped me to develop relationships in the General Assembly, to understand how the legislature works, to understand how the state budget works. I've been appointed by four straight governors to different roles, uh, and it's allowed me to travel around the state, visit all of our communities, and understand the differences in the needs, the workforce needs of those different communities from very urban to very small and rural. So that's been the most important thing. It's given me perspective. But secondly, it's helped me to understand what matters to legislators. They want to make sure that state dollars are being spent in an appropriate and efficient way. And I've learned how to present to our joint budget committee, figured out what things are appealing to which legislator legislators. And that's really helped me, I think, be effective in advocating for community colleges in particular, but higher education in general. Understanding the perspectives of constituents and ensuring that you're telling the persuasive story. Well, that's right. When you work in politics, you learned you learn that 
often legislation is advanced through anecdote as much through data. And so you learn how to combine both of those things. How do you tell a story and back it up with data in a way that is then both viscerally appealing, but also from a policy perspective, a financial perspective, appealing and persuasive? And I think each of the things I've done along the way have helped me to do that. Chancellor Joe Garcia, thank you for those remarks. The tagline used by the Colorado Community College System is changing the way Colorado goes to college. What are some of the innovations you have been deploying across the state? For example, what are you doing with, say, online education, non-credit programs, and opportunities for education in rural settings? What are some of those initiatives you're most excited about? All of those, frankly, because each of those areas represents a growth opportunity for us. In fact, perhaps the only growth opportunities, but also it helps us to expand the uh, economic um, benefits of higher education beyond the front range communities. So, for example, we all have been doing online education for many years. We're not unique in that respect. And we all during the pandemic, had to really ramp that up dramatically. And it wasn't just addressing the technological needs, but also providing training to our faculty and staff and our students' services providers to make sure we knew how to do that. How could we reach students? And we all know that a sense of belonging is one of the most important things uh, that leads to students' success. But that's hard to do when you're working only remotely. So we've spent a lot of time working on that. Now, we have made technology far more available to our rural students. But we've also, again, provided technology to our faculty that not all of them had access to or were really very comfortable with. Right now, one of the things I'm excited about is our rural college consortium, where in our small rural colleges, in our small rural communities, there often aren't enough students to support a particular program. But if we can link all of our rural colleges together and let's say have one instructor in, for example, cybersecurity, very hard to find those instructors, very hard to find enough students in any one community to fill a course. But if we can connect those rural schools and offer synchronous online classes to three students in one community, five in another, two in another, six in another, suddenly we can economically offer a program that will help students in each of those communities, and we can do it in a way that's affordable to us. That's important because we are one of the worst funded states when it comes to um, support for public higher education. We just don't have much money. You mentioned adult learners and uh, as well. We know that is a key growth area. We know nationally we're seeing already a decline in the number of high school graduates. That's particularly true in our rural communities where the populations are not only decreasing, but they are aging. We need to figure out how to serve more students more effectively, or we simply can't keep the doors open. And we know our colleges are key economic engines in those small communities. Joe, thank you. You're describing operating efficiently as you expand the benefits of higher education to every community. That's exactly right. And again, we know 
because we hear it regularly from our governor and the legislators that they're not going to just keep giving us more money as much as we may come in and plead for it. We need to demonstrate that we are going to do things differently. We're going to improve our outcomes and we're going to do it in a way that demonstrates that we understand these are taxpayer dollars that we are spending. Well, let me pick up on a theme of uh, operating effectively and efficiently through the type of talent that you have the opportunity to hire. So as a chief executive, you work with um, several other leaders to help do all of the things you've just been describing about advancing the institutional missions within the Colorado Community College system. What are some of the leadership characteristics you look for in the leadership talent in higher education that you work with? Well, Stephen, let me first say it has been a challenge for us to simply maintain the workforce that we had even a few years ago. And it's frankly becoming more and more difficult to hire new people to replace those who have left. That's, again, not unique to higher education. It's not unique to Colorado. There is just a great deal of competition in the economy right now, and we do not pay the wages that our four-year colleagues pay or that other nonprofits and certainly the for-profits pay. So we recognize we've got a real challenge, and so we try to emphasize our mission, that we want people who believe in our mission of improving lives through education. So I think we've had great success there in attracting people who believe in equity and believe in a focus on improving outcomes. We've had to hire, I think, seven presidents in the last three or four years because of retirements. And I was a little bit worried about that. But we have attracted incredible new presidents from all around the country. And I think the most diverse group of presidents you will find anywhere, certainly the most diverse group of presidents we've ever had in Colorado. And they've come here because they like what we are doing. They've heard about what we're doing and they want to be a part of what we are doing. So I think that's been one of the keys for us. People see what we're doing and they want to be a part of it. Focusing on your mission through a belief in equity and attention to outcomes. I'd like to pick up on that theme of equity for our next couple of questions. As institutions attract, retain, support, and advance uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives through the talent they attract, the students they serve, the programs they offer, how can institutions go about doing so most effectively? Well, they can't just talk about it. They can't just hire a chief diversity officer. They can't just appoint a committee. It has to be something that the entire organization is committed to. When I arrived here, I had a number of presidents who are very good and very experienced presidents. And I said, we're going to talk more about equity. We're going to talk more about DEI. And some of them, very well-meaning individuals, just said, you know, I'm uncomfortable. I don't know how to talk about it. I'm afraid I'm going to get myself into trouble. I'm going to say the wrong thing, and someone's going to accuse me of being insensitive or worse. And so I think if you want to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, you have to practice. It's like any other language. You can't go to one workshop a year and learn how to speak French. You've got to practice it over and over. You're going to make mistakes, but you got to keep coming back to it and you got to keep improving and developing that skill. I don't know why we look at diversity any differently, but we do. We think one workshop 
one mandatory workshop that we force people to go to is going to make things better. It's not. We have to be more committed to it. Another analogy I use is if you want to go on a diet, you can't do it for one day and think you're going to make a difference. You've got to commit to it and say, I'm going to do this and focus on it, pay some attention to it every single day. And eventually I will see improvement. I won't see it tomorrow, but I'll see it over time if I am consistent in my behavior. I think we need to look at equity the same way. Moving beyond talking to consistent practice. So as a follow-up, I'd like to just ask you to talk about some of the keys or or, um, ingredients, if you will, to building a culture of equity within our institutions. How can leaders, and, and really indeed all of us, how can all of us promote more diverse and equitable environments? Well, we have to hire, frankly, diverse faculty, staff, and leaders. We can't, again, hire one chief diversity officer. We've got to hire at all levels a diverse workforce. And we've got to emphasize to everyone in the workforce that this needs to be a priority for everybody. Then we need to look at the data, not just how uh, we are doing with our students, but how we are doing with our workforce. Do we have a more diverse or less diverse workforce this year than we did we did the year before? Do we have more diverse students? And more importantly, how are those diverse students doing compared to their white peers, to their middle class peers, urban, suburban to rural peers? All of those things are things that we need to look at because we have to make data-informed decisions. Again, that's something we talk about all the time, but we get uncomfortable when we look at that data down to the classroom level. And that's what we've done here now at a number of our schools. We've identified in certain classrooms that students of color do not do as well as they do in a very similar classroom teaching the very same course, but led by another instructor. We don't even like to talk about that, and certainly the instructors don't. But if we look at it in a way that's not punitive, but as a way to be supportive and to identify ways people can improve, I think we do a better job, not just for our students, but for our instructors. Attending to issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion by the people we hire and a focus on data. I would like to learn a little bit about how you lead a large, complex system. As you were noting, there are 13 colleges within the Colorado Community College system, spanning 35 locations across the state. And as we were alluding to, these include... uh, urban, suburban, and rural contexts. So how do you operate at a systems level altitude, if you will, uh, while also honoring the uniqueness that each campus or location offers within the system? Well, I'll tell you honestly, Stephen, when I was the president in one of our colleges 20 years ago, there was nothing I hated more than coming to the system office or even hearing from the system office. I felt they didn't really understand what we are trying to do in Colorado Springs. I felt that they weren't always supportive. And I thought I could do a better job if they would just leave me the heck alone. I try to remember that now that I'm in this role. And I tell all the people here at the system office that our number one job is to support our college presidents as they try to make their colleges successful in their communities with their students and their programs, not to direct them, um, not to uh, enforce certain ways of doing things, but to 
help them identify ways that will work for them and then to support them. That doesn't mean I don't evaluate them, that I don't have expectations for them, but I think I need to see my job first and foremost as supporting the work of our college leaders. Joe, thank you for sharing how you navigate a systems level perspective, drawing on your own background from both a campus perspective and the systems office perspective. I also tell our presidents, especially our new ones, that they should feel free to call me or any of my senior team here at any time if they need help and that it won't be held against them, that if they aren't sure about a particular way that, for example, we do our financial reporting to the state, uh, they should call our CFO. If they have a question about a curricular program, they don't need to come to me. They can go straight to our vice chancellor for academic and student affairs, that we are here to help them and not uh, simply to try to, again, control them or punish them when they get it wrong. We want people to feel that they have the safety to be aggressive, to come up with new ideas, and to try new things. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. If they don't, we want them to be able to pick themselves up, dust themselves off, ask how we can help them the next time, and keep moving forward. I appreciate you sharing all of that. It sounds like indeed your role and the role of your colleagues in the systems office is really to enable the success of each of those individual colleges and locations within the system. You just put it more succinctly than I did. Thank you, Stephen. Well, thank you for sharing your leadership journey and your leadership practice. Joe, as a leader, you have a lot on your mind. So I'd like to start with what are some things that say keep you up at two o'clock in the morning as you're tossing and turning there? What are some of the challenges you grapple with? Well, the challenges are certainly many and not unique to Colorado. Our small rural colleges are really important to the communities where they're located. And yet they have faced declining enrollments and frankly, aging facilities uh, for the last decade. It's been tough to figure out how to support those rural colleges and how to help them develop more financially sustainable models. That keeps me up at night. The other thing that keeps me up at night is when our presidents, some very experienced, some very new, face criticism from their faculty or communities, because I've been there. I understand how hard that is when you desperately want to do a good job, but some people just don't think you are doing a good job or that you can't be trusted or you're doing something wrong. Uh, all of our presidents struggle with that because they all want to do things right. And I know how hard it is when you're just not successful at convincing everybody. And you can't convince everybody, but you've got to convince enough of them to continue to move forward in a particular direction to advance the interest first of the students and then of the institution. Those are the things that really torment me. We know we need to do a better job also of serving diverse communities. And for the, my entire time in higher education in Colorado, that has been my number one focus closing those gaps that separate our students of color from our white students. And what is making me crazy right now is over the last few years, after many years of seeing those gaps close, we've seen them widen again. 
as students of color and first generation and low income students are the ones who have disproportionately left higher education. Joe, thanks for sharing those. And as a, as a follow-up, I guess I'll, I'll um, conclude this question with a more positive standpoint. What are some things that uh, motivate you during the tough times? One of the things is I still hear from students who I worked with 20 years ago when I was in my first community college job, students who I got to know who contact me, whether it's through Facebook or send me a card or a letter to let me know they've just had a new child, they've just got a new job, they've just computed, completed a new credential. I know so many community college students who I think didn't believe in their ability to be successful, who now have PhDs and are working in our system or at other universities. People who are now lawyers, dentists, doctors who started uh, and who I knew when they were timid and unsure community college students. Those stories, and there are so many of them, always really motivate me. Whenever I get a chance to talk to a student, whether they've advanced that far or they've simply completed another semester successfully, it's hard not to be motivated by that. Well, Joe, you've been describing some of the challenges and motivations you uh, experience and observe. I'd like to now ask you to observe some trends broadly in higher education that you are seeing unfold, say, over the next three to five years. So what are some things, what are trends, if you will, that you are observing from your role as the chief executive of the Colorado Community College System? And how is your system prepared to address some of those trends? Well, the thing that concerns me the most, Stephen, is the number of leaders in our country who are attacking higher education generally. In fact, most of those leaders benefited tremendously from it and tended the most elite institutions, but now they speak pejoratively about higher education overall. They say it is either irrelevant, useless, or worse, indoctrinates uh, our children, their children in ways that are not helpful. I think they're entirely wrong. And they're sending a message to, I think, the people who are very susceptible and who believe that maybe going to college isn't the right thing to do. And it certainly isn't going to provide the returns that I think it should provide. I think that's a dangerous uh message, not just for individuals, but overall for our country and for our economy. The more people who get an education, and we know this over the years, again, it has grown our middle class, has strengthened our democracy. And now there are those who I think would tear it down. And they're trying to do it by attacking that which built it in the first place. And that's a equitable higher education system. And of course, the second thing is declining number of students and the increased competition for them. I was just reading a long article today about the fact that regional comprehensives and small state colleges are really suffering. And our R1 and flagship universities are growing. I really worry that we are going to begin to try to weed out and push away institutions that have done the best job of serving communities and serving first-generation students. And I think that is dangerous as well, and that really concerns me. 
So Joe, thank you for observing those trends. Let me just ask as a follow-up, what uh, are some things we all could be doing in the higher education sector to combat the public skepticism and uh, maybe reverse some of those declining enrollments? What advice uh, or perspective might you offer? I think we need to use data to overpower the anecdotes. We all hear or read anecdotes about individuals who graduated from college and know $100,000 and can't get a job. We know those are very rare. And I think we need to look at the data and tell folks that's not actually very common, that most people who graduate, graduate with more like $20,000 or $25,000 in debt if they graduate from a four-year university. Most of those folks have dramatically increased their earning power. When we go back 12 years ago to the end of the last recession, we know that the people who lost their jobs during the depression and those who've gained jobs back following that recession are those with a college education. That was true during the pandemic as well. Those folks with an education were able to adapt, to work remotely. They didn't lose their jobs at the same rate. They still had a livelihood. And those folks are more likely to own homes, to contribute to our tax base. Those are the things that matter, not those strange and unusual stories of someone who owns who owes $100,000 and is working at Starbucks. From anecdote to data, Joe, thanks for that. As we conclude, we always like to ask our guests to leave our listeners with a brief final thought. So I'd like to give you that opportunity as well. So a brief final thought from Joe. My final thought is that higher education matters. It is relevant. It does make a difference, not just to an individual, but to a community and to our broader economy. We need to not move away from the small d democratization of higher education, but really step on the accelerator and see we want more people to get an education. That doesn't mean everybody needs a bachelor's degree in a liberal arts uh, program, but everybody needs some post-secondary education, whether it's in a trade, whether it's a short-term certificate in a healthcare field or an IT field, we need those folks and they need an education in order to help us strengthen our country. It's helped me. I know I came from a family where I had a mother who wasn't able to go to college, but always talked about the value of higher education. All of my siblings and I coming from a small community in Northern New Mexico, got undergraduate and graduate degrees. And my mother, when she turned 56, went back to a community college and got her degree. And at 63, she got her bachelor's degree. And she continued to work for years afterwards, benefited by the power of that degree. So it's not just for 18 year olds. It's not just for middle class folks. It's not just for white kids whose parents went to college. It is for everybody and it will make everybody's life better and richer. I appreciate you leaving us with those inspiring words. We've been speaking with Joe Garcia, Chancellor of the Colorado Community College System. Joe, thanks so much for your time. I really have enjoyed your insights and our conversation. Thank you, Stephen. I've enjoyed it as well. This has been Leading Improvements in Higher Education, the award-winning podcast service of the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. Learn more and access other episodes at assessmentinstitute.iupui.edu. 
Our sponsor for this season is the Center for Assessment and Research Studies at James Madison University. Learn more at jmu.edu assessment. Our podcast producers are Chad Beckner, Caleb Keith, and Shirley Yorger, with original music composed by Caleb Keith. If you know someone who might enjoy the podcast, please encourage them to give us a listen. We appreciate you helping to spread the word. I'm Stephen Hundley from IUPUI, inviting you to join us again for Leading Improvements in Higher Education.